How did this whole journey start for you? Where'd you grow up at? So I was born small town Canada, um, not too far from Toronto. And yeah, I was the youngest of five. Mom and dad were busy, so I was kind of left my own devices. This was, you know, before the age of helicopter parenting and car seats and all those good safe things. <laughs> um, yeah, so I just jump on my bike and run around and play with my friends and try to burn things. It's just a just a loose cannon uh, to the nth degree. Um, actually, ended up dropping out of high school at 16 and kind of milled around up to no good for about a year and stumbled into Canadian Army recruiting office. Cool videos, look fun. I mean, you know, get meals, clothes to wear, and get to shoot a gun. Like that sounded awesome to <laughs> someone on their 17th birthday. Yeah. And so, yeah, I ended up uh, enlisting in the Canadian Army. And that's where this concept of mental toughness was first really introduced to me. It, it wasn't articulated as such, but it basically tasks were laid out and you're expected to do them and do them to the best of your ability, regardless of how you felt and regardless of the conditions. And it got progressively more challenging. And we had leadership that is just like, I mean, they weren't stellar, they were good, but they weren't exceptional. Uh, but I started to see the power of like, oh, if I just put my head down and do the right thing and don't quit, like I can, I can outperform people who have a lower threshold for pain tolerance or BS or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, cause I'm like, I don't, that doesn't bother me. Like whatever. You can excel. Yeah. And, yeah. That, and that sort of gained traction and that bled into, you know, then I came down to the U.S. Army. I was a, a dual citizen, uh, Canadian U.S. Did you enlist at 17? 17th birthday in the Canadian Army. And did and you hadn't finished high school. Yep. And then so I and I ended up doing like a reserve program where I, I actually finished my high school again. That was one of the things where they're like, Are you kidding me? Like, go go finish the basics <laughs> first. So I, I sort of went on reserve duty and it was just a funny program. But uh, some of them, you know, saw something worth investing in me and that made made all the difference. Crazy. Because all of a sudden I had a structure to kinda like focus on and have energy because I didn't have that myself uh, I, I was kind of all over the place mm -hmm. and all of a sudden when you know and that's part of mental toughness right like why are you mental toughness what was your purpose for me at that point it was oh I'm in the army I want to do well so I don't get yelled at or I get promoted or yeah. you know whatever or I feel better when I win and, I, and I, I couldn't even articulate it but that's where things started and I realized the key to that was never ever quit and do, do your best and, and do it right and that'll work out better than the shortcuts, work out better than the hacks. Uh, it's slower, but it's more impactful and it's real. And you know, that, that lesson carried forward for about 31 more years, at least wow. till today. Growing up in that situation, were you guys out in the woods or were you in town? Uh, we were kind of small town. I spent a lot of time, I mean, we're talking towns of like 1500 people and stuff. So. Yeah. It was serious cow country and, you know, the, the jobs I had grown up, I worked from when I was 11 on, were always, you know, you know, picking strawberries when you're really little, then you're, you're, you're bailing hay, you're, you're mm -hmm. out, you know, just kind of mucking out the, the cow pens and stuff. Uh, this was Eastern Ontario, so it was all, all dairy. Um, and you kind of, you see, you see the people who, you know, I was a hired hand, I was a kid, I don't know how helpful I was, but here I was a teenager <laughs> doing it for cigarette money or whatever I was saving up for at the time. But you would see these people who that was just their life. You just got up early, you worked every day, you did it right, you did it hard. And, you know, 
yeah. breaks, vacations, like that wasn't on the radar or wasn't on the radar in any capacity. They weren't, mm. um, and it, their family was there or their purpose or was their carrying on a legacy is for their family. This is what they did. And they were passionate about it. Uh, not all of them, but the ones, the ones I happened to interact with and, and you could see, you know, the families that that was, that was their thing. And, you know, that's early, early seeing mental toughness in its yeah. kind of undefined stages. Yeah, that agriculture foundation is an extremely mental, mentally tough population. Yeah. Waking up early. Like in Montana, it's like up early. It's negative 30 in the winter, out every day. Yeah. And it, it's just part of what they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the animals, the fields, nature doesn't care. Like, yeah. just get her done. You can love it. You can hate it. I saw a good saying. I think it's actually from uh, Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School, but it's like, you can be cold, wet, and miserable, or you can just be cold and wet. Yeah. And I, you know, I think, I, you know, farming is kind of the same way. Like, it's got to be done. Yeah. So, and pick your mindset. Was your dad around? Yeah, my dad was around. He, um, he'd been a pastor for a while, and then he, and that's why I had to go wild, because I was a preacher's kid. <laughs> and then he, uh, he was an engineer also, just kind of an old school civil engineer. So. And then how did it work getting from... Canadian Army to U.S. Army. I drove a car. Okay, that's all yeah, it took. Yeah, I just drove south. <laughs> um, no, it's funny actually. Canadian Army was hard to join. Part of it was probably because I was super young and wildly underqualified. And they, this Canadian Army, there's like four people, so they didn't really need that many. <laughs> but um, going down to the U.S., you know, the recruiters kind of like it, it's a little bit of a sales sales pitch going on. Mm. So you know, they they roll out their red carpet, and I felt like a big deal. Uh, so yeah, I came down, contacted him as a dual citizen. It was a it was a slam dunk. I was the easiest recruit to walk into the Potsdam, New York recruiting station, November third, nineteen ninety two, because that's that's when I enlisted in the U.S. Army. Wild, and you already had a few years of a year or so under. Yeah, yeah, Canadian. a little little less than two years in the Canadian Army. I think I literally joined the U.S. Army well, technically on a break from the Canadian Army, not officially out. So. <laughs> There's probably an issue there I should explore more, but we're just going to let sleeping dogs live. <laughs> and then where did that take you? What happened after New York? So I was enlisted. I went down to uh, Georgia. I went through basic training, infantry school, airborne school. And it was all really easy because I kind of discovered a little bit of the, the power of not quitting and doing it right. And just that, you know, don't bitch about it. Just get her done. Mm -hmm. um, so training was pretty easy for me. And then I ended up going to uh, Germany to a mechanized infantry unit. Um, and that, that was, uh, yeah, it was kind of a change of gears. Is way more laid back than, than I wanted to wanted or needed. Yeah, in Germany. Um, yeah. Uh, it was, I mean, it was, it was a great time. But when you're 18, 19, you need to be kept busy or you can make some bad decisions. Luckily, from there, we deployed to Yugoslavia. That's when a lot of the... Um, you know, there was Macedonia, there was Yugoslavia, Croatia, all that was breaking apart. Mm -hmm. It's like in the history books now, but, you know, back then I was 19, 20 years old. And so I deployed there for like, a, I think it's the only time the U.S. Army ever did a U.N. peacekeeping mission in Macedonia. So, yeah, I was sitting on the side of a mountain with eight of my closest friends or not. It didn't matter. I was out there with them and we were doing patrols up and down the Serbian border, just figuring out life as a yeah. bunch of bunch of young folk. Um try and do this mission and prevent an area from, from tumbling into conflict. And that, that was the first time I ever actually did anything. It was really good. Probably saved me a lot because uh, when I was younger, um, 
when I was in Germany, like I said, there's there's just a lot yeah. of bad decisions you can make as a 19 year old, and I was making all of them. So too much downtime. Yeah, six months to dry out was good. Yeah, yeah, wild. And so now you're now you're around 19 or 20. Yeah, early 20s. And then where are you heading next? So I wanted a bit of a challenge. Still figuring out military, right? Because I was young and didn't have a ton of experience. Uh, so I went to the 82nd Airborne in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, because um, it's it's just a cool name with a lot of history. And that was, um, you know, it was different. I wouldn't say better or worse necessarily than my, my time as a mechanized infantry guy. It was just different. Uh, but that's where I started to have leaders that were pushing me a bit. They mm. were like, hey, you should go to officer training. You got more to give. Um, and, and frankly, I had a few other you know, people that I worked for that I'm like, I think I could do your job better than you, which mm. was probably a little bit of hubris. But at the time, you know, when you're 21, I'm like, I, I think I can do what you're doing. This doesn't seem that hard and you don't seem to do it that good. Mm-hmm. You know, like just show up, be present, listen, do your job, simple stuff like that. Some of that was missing. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to throw my name in the hat and give this a shot. You know, it was that whole, you talk about, you know, mental toughness. It's you're seeking challenge. You're seeking something that's going to push you a little further. So yeah. for me at that point, you know, physically I was a stud. Um, but I was like, man, I, I'm a freaking high school dropout. Let me, let me see if I can go to school. So I ended up going, applied for a program, went to Gonzaga University, and uh, you know they released me from active duty. I'd been in for four years. They released me to do this school program, but I was part of ROTC, and the deal was uh, I would come back in and be an officer. Mm-hmm. It's called the Green to Gold program. Yeah. So yeah, I was doing that, and that was a, you know, academics were a whole new world to me. Crazy. Yeah, yeah so now you're pushing those mental limits, not just those physical limits, and are you starting at this time to dive into that leadership realm or was this just more a second degree? Yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of the principle of ROTC was they're, they're teaching me the basics of the military that I had nailed down pretty good by this point. Uh, but then they're also trying to teach these 18 to 22 year olds, you know, how to lead. Yeah, how to be officers. Yeah, exactly. How to be officers. You know, I'd, I'd argue every level within organizations, you know, people should strive to lead. To, to exert influence to achieve an impact. Uh, but there it's now you're getting that, that formal kind of decision-making, you know, formal positional leadership. And that's what they're preparing you for. So did you, you spent four years at Gonzaga? And then uh, three. three. Yeah. I decided I'd make it hard and try to compress it down and see, <laughs> see if I could do it that way. And then you come out of that program as an officer? I did, yep. And from there, you know, did Infantry officer training, again, pretty, pretty straightforward, really good program. They focused on teaching versus just hazing or smoking. And I uh, went to ranger school, and that's another, you know, kind of great mental toughness program, right? Mm-hmm. Any single day in that school is not overly hard. You know, you're not doing insane feats of human endurance. They're not easy, but I wouldn't call them hard. If, if you hunt backcountry, like any one of those days, you know, that I've gone out with people and I'm, and I'm no expert, but any one of those days physically was probably as, if not more demanding than a typical ranger school day. They just keep stretching them out. Just keeps going. You're not getting as much sleep as you want. You're not getting as much food as you want. And, and what was really curious, and I think it was an important lesson, was I went in there with a really unique perspective. So I'm getting ready to go to ranger school. I finished the infantry officer uh, course. I was in great shape. 
I knew all the technical aspects at Ranger School. And I was pretty confident physically I was going to be okay, you know, provided I didn't get injured or, or do something stupid. Uh, so I have two days before I start, and I went down to Andersonville. It's the POW Museum in Georgia. Mm -hmm. It used to be a uh, you know Confederate prison camp for Union soldiers in the Civil War, and it was pretty pretty bleak conditions. Uh, as in, you know, a lot of people died that didn't need to die just because the conditions. Well, this museum is dedicated to you know American service members suffering in these camps, you know, throughout our history. And so I'm going through and I'm looking at these pictures of, uh, you know, POWs in Japanese camps in, in World War II, and you're reading their accounts. And I think they had some also on the Holocaust in the concentration camps. And you're seeing pictures from Andersonville, you know, they were starting to get cameras in the Civil War. They showed these, you know, emaciated soldiers, like skeletons. Yeah. And you walk through that and you're like, okay, I'm going into a school where yeah, I'm going to get scuffed up. I'm going to get challenged, but it's all to make me better. Yeah, you know it's a school. No, yeah, no one's yeah. trying to do you harm. They're actually the opposite. They're trying to make you better. They're trying to make you tougher so that, you know, we weren't at war at this point, so that if and when I have to lead people in combat, you know, I've taken a few hits on the chin and I know how to handle it. It's automatic and saves lives. And I'm going to be getting some sleep. I'm going to be getting some food. I could get medical care if I got injured, like... This is, this is a cakewalk compared yeah. to what these people went through. And so I went in with that mindset and it totally changed it. Like anytime I started feeling sorry for myself, Just I'm tired, I'm hungry. I'm like, yeah, you're not going to get marched out to a gas chamber. You're yeah. not, you know, you're not going to starve to death with your family, not knowing where you are. Like this is all being done to get us better. And I think we lose sight of that sometimes when, you know, we're doing that kind of self-inflicted adversity to get better, to get stronger. When we're pushing past our comfort zone and we're like, this sucks. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to let your emotions get out of control, but then you stop and you go, wait a second, I chose this. And why did I do this? Like it comes down to purpose. I did this because I wanted to be better, because I want to do more, because I want to have an impact. And once, you know, I started looking at you know, like Ranger School in that framework, I'm like, bring it. Yeah. Like the, then, then the more hurt, the harder, the heavier pack, the longer walks, you're just making me better. Well, that alone is a giant mental toughness pillar and principle all on its own just that whole idea of perspective like yeah. the perspective of where you're actually at and then, should have done that for one of the sessions it's a good <laughs> perspective gets people through a lot of just tough nasty situations and also that like nothing changes someone's life as much sometimes as identifying what they're grateful for and those are like really closely aligned perspective of what other people have been for through and then just being grateful for where you're at and that that like those two combined create such a powerful like mental toughness boost yeah. that I think that's that's huge. I actually do talk about that for a little bit like you know we do a session on mindset and I hope you're okay with me talking yeah. about this so yeah. spoiler alert but you know one of the aspects of mindset that that I ask people to focus on is Hey, when you're going, or it's actually, I'm sorry, it's on challenge and adversity. It's, it's when you're going through a time that life throws at you. So you're going through something really tough that you didn't choose. Like I didn't, you know, some, you know, something's going with your family or whatever it may be, but it's hard. The first thing is, even though you may feel like it, like understand you're not alone. You are not the first person to deal with this problem. Mm -hmm. And probably someone has had it 
regardless of where you're on the spectrum, someone probably had it harder, as, as, as lousy as that feels. And that, that isn't to downplay what you're going through. Like, hey, I'm going through chemo like this. I don't need to hear this fluff right now. It's not to downplay that experience, but it's to give you the strength to know, okay, I'm not alone. Other people have got through this. I can get through this. Just be grateful that it's not worse. And especially if you can flip your vision to someone else and help others, and you'll, you'll hear and see examples of this, right? Yeah. Come up in the media, like here's someone who's struggling with so much on their own, yet they're selfless and they focus on someone else and it elevates them, right? Mm -hmm. It takes your mind off your own misery when you help others. So some really powerful tools coupled with the gratitude that you mentioned. Yeah, those tools I love too, because you can see them instantly work. It's like some of this mental toughness stuff at times can take years to see the fruit of it but that trick alone you can see in like a 30 minute workout so you yeah. like i'm dying and if i start thinking about how bad that hurts it only makes my performance worse but if i just instantly be like i'm gonna help this guy right next to me because i know he's dying too and if i just like support him rather than thinking about me dying then all of a sudden I get like this 20% power boost like on the spot. Yeah. So that's one. I love that one because you can see it like work immediately. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. definitely. I've been there. So where are we heading after Ranger School? So from there, I uh, went to conventional infantry unit. It was great. Uh, it's led some, some really cool leaders were in there and, uh, we actually had a high number of people who had served in Ranger Regiment when I was there. It was um, Fort Lewis, Washington. So while I was there, uh, we did some great training, continued to learn and grow and kind of push my limits and talk a little bit about some of that in, in our later sessions too. But linked up some good folks and they were essentially like, hey, you, you seem to like to keep challenging yourself. You should put a packet in and, and try out for Ranger Regiment. And I'm like, I think I'm wildly underqualified, but Sure, why not? Mm -hmm. So put in a packet, went to their training again, the superpower of not quitting and putting your head down and just doing your best and not stopping until the whistle blows. Um, that, you know, that carried me through their kind of their selection process and I ended up getting hired into Second Ranger Battalion at Fort Lewis. And now definitely I was looking at my left and right going, okay, I'm a little out of my league here. <laughs> Uh, these guys didn't just finish high school, but they were the captains of the, you know, the varsity football team. And here's Phil, you know, who was a high school dropout, and, you know, kid who left home at 16. Uh, you know, so there's some insecurities to battle there, which of course that, you know, you have to rise to the occasion. You have to step up and be confident. And I was in a leadership role. So uh, that, that's the first time where I, you know, deployed the actual combat, you know, 9-11 happened was in my conventional unit. And then when I went over to the Rangers, uh, that's when, you know, we started deploying and when the mental toughness really shifted from the stuff we did in training, you know, I talked about the ranger school, like it was hard, it was meant to prepare us for combat, yeah. where all that stuff started showing itself what you did or didn't do uh, in combat. And you can see stories and, you know, if you look at some of the examples of what happened in combat, you'll see the units that were mentally tough and you'll see the ones that weren't. And the only difference is now that price was being paid in blood and bodies. And I mean, it, it really was, you know, look up the Jessica Lynch, um, you know, what happened to her organization and, and why it happened. Mm -hmm. More than what happened, look at why. 
and you can look at the organization that came and you know were part of the rescue mission for it, which I was you know I was fortunate enough to be you know play a small part in that. Um, and when I say I, I mean my organization. I, that sounded really mm -hmm. arrogant there for a minute. But it came down to who was ready, who trained hard, who, who pushed the limits, who did the extra 20% in the gym, and who just did the minimum and walked away. And the problem was now we're, now we're on a playing field where there's the ultimate price right. if you did or yeah. didn't. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where it really became obvious. And you saw the people who, you saw the difference between physical toughness and those who are mentally tough. You saw, you know, guys who were exceptional in, in training and physical specimens, and then, you know, in, in under fire and in moments of stress and duress, like they weren't making good decisions. They weren't doing selfless things. They were worried about their own hide. And you're like, wait a second, like you're a friggin' animal back stateside. Yeah. What's going on here? Like you have all the capacity. And then you see folks that maybe were kind of a gray man, uh, and you hadn't seen, you know, him or her really do anything exceptional. They were just solidly average and then stepping up under stress and pressure and executing, you know, some pretty exceptional things in some pretty dire circumstances. That mental toughness just came out where you didn't even know it was there. Yeah. And you saw, okay, it's not just about, hey, who's, you know, how much do you deadlift, how fast do you run and how tight's your shot group? It's mm -hmm. what can you do when it really matters? And do you have a higher purpose in yourself or do you just, is it, is it about you? So you're now in our story, you're in the Ranger Regiment. It's after September 11th. At this stage of your life where you're at at that point, was mental toughness and in, in leadership something you were paying much attention to and breaking down the science of it? Because now you're, you're studying it, you're teaching it, mental toughness, mindset, leadership. We're going to present a lot of that to the Mountain Tough audience here real shortly, which we're super excited about. But when you were back in those shoes, were you just grinding and working hard or was it something you were thinking about all the time? It's, I mean, I think it was in the background. It's, you know, it's almost like Gandhi, right? You know, there go my people. I must follow them for that. I am their leader. Like definitely, I was just trying to keep up. Mm -hmm. um, I, had, I had some amazing uh, rangers and stuff that I was able to serve with. So. You know, you're you're doing your best to keep your head above water and stay with the group, and and that peer group has pushed me. I'm getting better every day uh, because I have to exert max effort to stay up with them. And we touch a bit on that, like who's your team, right, to build mental toughness. So, you know, when you're in that, hey, I'm expending all my energy just just to to meet the standard. Mm -hmm. You don't always have the time and space to think about why am I doing this and how do I do it better. You're just organically doing it, but. I, I was able to connect with, you know, Pat Tillman served in the 2nd Ranger Battalion at that time. You know, briefly, briefly met him, you know, kind of heard, heard about his story before he came there. Uh, you know, him and his, his brother in the unit and, you know, just focusing on who he was as, as a person and, and seeing the example he set, even from a distance. He was, he was an A company guy, you know, I was BCO. Uh, but you'd see him in the dive facility, you'd see him in the gym, a few small conversations here and there on deployment. And just realize, you know, that this person, like, there's some different wiring going on here. Mm -hmm. Like, their why and their purpose and their values, like, were blazing bright. Now, you know, when you start getting in a unit that requires multiple volunteering and artist selection challenges, 
I think it, it weeds out people who aren't committed and don't have some sort of purpose, but there's, there's a continuum. And, you know, like Philman was, was on the, the very high, bright end of that, where it, it resonated literally from a distance and how he carried himself and how he interacted with those around him. Yeah. Uh, which was this humble, ultra hard working, go 100% and then some every task, every day, every way. That was my impression. So I started to see it. And, you know, there, there definitely was a, a kind of watershed moment for me when I went from living this to living and studying it and going, how do I apply this more and pass it on to others? And that was like a 22 hour uh, C-17 ride. That's a big cargo jet. I was the only person in the back of it going from Afghanistan all the way back to Fort Lewis, Washington. I think we had a few stops on the way. But I'm back there. I'm all alone by myself. And the only book I have to read is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which yeah. I, you know, I mean, just the title alone, you hear about it so much. I'm like, you know, this, this is, does this really apply to me as I think I'm maybe 28, 29 years old at the time? But it's all I have. And my wife gave it to me. So it seemed like a good idea to read it. So I read it and it, it was a tough start. It was, a, you know, you have to kind of get over that initial mm-hmm. ridge line to, to ride, the, ride the hill down. But once I got into it and, you know, chewed my way through about the first two chapters and started doing the exercises, it gave me a whole new level of clarity on, hey, what, what is my purpose? What, like, why am I on this side of the grass? What am I about? What's, you know, what's my legacy going to be? How do I want to live my life? Like, what are the values I want to embody? What are the principles that I want to apply to my daily actions? And, you know, at the end of the day, when people, you know, people in my life, like, what was my impact? Were they just there eating, drinking, watching TV, existing? Or was I contributing and connecting with others, inspiring them to be better? And I go, no, I want to, you know, whether today's my last day or I get another 60 years, um, you know, that's where I'm like, hey, I want to make an impact. And I don't think it was specific, like, I want to make people mentally tough at that point. But it was like, hey, how do I help everyone in their own way elevate their game? You know, we all have different callings, different purposes. There's a lot of paths to the top. But what can I do to help people meet that? Because I think if we're all truly engaged in that and, and executing, yeah, like, we're getting her done on a global level. And when did, when did your faith journey start for you and how did that? make an impact through all these years? Yeah, that was, so I would say, I, so I grew up in, in a home where uh, formal religion was definitely preached and practiced rigorously on a daily basis. And if it wasn't, you know, you were gonna get the belt, mm-hmm. uh, you know, literally. So it was always there conceptually as a framework, but it was a list of rules for me as I grew up, which wasn't particularly appealing. It was a, it was a bunch of, you know, sticks and carrots. like. Do this, go to heaven, do that, go to hell. Do this, get the belt, do that, don't get the belt. Yeah. Okay, we were a little light on incentives <laughs> in my family, but there was definitely disincentives. Um, so the stories, the structure was there, but it was all very religion associated. Legalistic. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty like very black and white, us and them. Um, and, you know, we were... We were like a, a pretty conservative Protestant sect and any other group was going to hell, but to one of the degrees of hell. Mm-hmm. So it was like, well, they're Presbyterian. They're bad, but they're not as bad as Catholics. Like that's how I grew <laughs> up, uh, which, which I think is totally jacked up levels. when I look back at it. Yeah, le- <laughs> levels of goodness and badness. And we were the very pinnacle, apparently, <laughs> what my parents told me. Um, although there was a ton of guilt and stuff washed around. So it was, it was kind of dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as I, as I grew up and started 
moving around on my own and frankly making bad decisions and seeing the consequences. And then you start seeing people who, you know, who had a higher calling, who had a higher purpose. Uh, and a lot of them were, were faith driven. Uh, not all of them. Some, some had different purposes that were pushing them to extreme levels. But uh, you did see those who, hey, I do what I do because this is what my faith, this is how it guides me. And this is who I want to be uh, based on a meeting that transcends this life on this earth. I'm like, wow, that's deep. Mm-hmm. You're just cool and I want to be like you. That was like my, my level of understanding at 20. You know, I think I continued to kind of keep it on the back burner, explore and, and, and meet and engage and ask questions with more and more people. But it probably wasn't until, you know, really my, my early to mid 30s. Um, you know, it's kind of boring, so feel free to edit this out if it doesn't make the cut. But I was listening to a radio uh, interview with Francis Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with the National Institute of Health, or he's he's still involved. He's part of the pandemic stuff. Him and, and uh, Dr. Fauci uh, were pizos. But he he's, was part of the Human Genome Project to totally decode the human genome. So hashtag science, big smart guy. Yeah. All right. And he was in this interview and he was talking about his journey to faith, how it was actually as he's decoding all this stuff and, and working at such intrinsic levels, uh, you know, with DNA and with other things that he sort of goes, I just kept getting smacked in the face. And I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, I apologize to Dr. Collins, but he's basically like he could not refute in his mind you know, the evidence of creator. You know, there's, there's something this is more than random. This is so complex and so incredible. Uh, it brought him around, uh, you know, to search more for, you know, to define this faith or attempt to. You know, I, I think it's a journey. Yeah. And that leads him to kind of exploring some of C.S. Lewis's writing, specifically Mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. And Francis Collins was a really cool guy on the radio. So I'm like, oh, he's basically, he writes a book called The Language of God. And he's recommending this other book called Mere Christianity to read. So I'm like, I deploy a lot. You know, sometimes I have time to read at night because <laughs> there's not much else to do when you're, you yeah. know, uh, if you're not on mission. <laughs> So I had those two books. I brought them with me. I was a Green Beret at the time, a Special Forces team leader in Iraq, and that was like my my light reading for when we had downtime. So it took me about eight months to get through both of them, uh, but they're phenomenal because Francis Collins makes this great modern, you know, at that time probably 2008 case for, you know, God and like, hey, here's some science stuff, but here's how it also carries over to my life and things that I can't explain, but they're real and they're good and they're powerful. And then you read C.S. Lewis, where he kind of meets out, well, he sort of makes a case for, you know, his faith and, and Christianity, but yeah. not like Baptist or Presbyterian or Catholic or any of that. He just goes, look, let's forget denominations. Let's forget that. What are the core tenets as far as we can see them? Uh, and he's very clear about this is what's clearly laid out. And this is what I'm making a leap on because mm-hmm. I think it's inferred here. And he's like, take it or leave it. And then because he's C.S. Lewis and he, you know, writes books like, you know, the Narnia Chronicles and stuff, there's a few times where he gets a little philosophical and really deep. And it's actually kind of cool, but I have to reread it like eight times. And then I forget as soon as I walk away like a goldfish. It's too deep sometimes. Yeah, you're like, ooh, that's good. I don't know if I'm quite there. I can't quite get in the bottom (laughs) of the pool, but I like where you're heading. (laughs) So So did did this narrative and this transition of your faith walk of being starting to explore more in being less legalistic and exploring this new journey did it did it change your leadership and how you how you viewed people yeah i mean it probably should have more than it did honestly uh, i had a I had a pretty 
I think I had a pretty service-oriented form of leadership mm -hmm. where it was about the mission and the team. And that, that frankly, was probably just inculcated over the years from some of the leaders I served with. Uh, it, and I became a habitual. I mean, the, the Ranger Creed is such a great example. Like, you would say it before you'd eat every mm -hmm. time, like through Ranger School and then Ranger Regiment. Like, it was just pounded into your head. And when people would do something stupid, it would often be, hey, that, that's not... We don't talk about that in the creed. You don't do that. You know, you violated the creed. So you're getting this mental toughness and leadership pounded into your head iteratively yeah. over years. And, and they're making you live it and they're bringing it up continuously and it's part of the culture. And then you have some good leaders that also reinforce it. So my, I would say that aspect of me was getting forged continually. I think my faith really impacted kind of my value system pretty concretely. I, when I work with people on, you know, kind of do this on my own as, as you know as well too but where i work with folks on defining purpose and principles i always kind of say ah oh, well if you've got a strong faith you're sort of cheating because you have a lot of that mapped out for you already mm -hmm. now it's a matter of refining it and going how does this play out in dustin's life and phil's life so i think that's where kind of my faith journey really did an impactful job of that was yeah. further refining and defining kind of my purpose and like you know i talked about one of the pillars of my purpose is connect and inspire another is to do good. Mm -hmm. well, what do good, that's very subjective, right? And so I can look at some of the really simple core tenets, you know, uh, in, in, in the Bible and go, well, I'm, I'm gonna choose, you know, uh, do unto others, you have them do unto you, all right? You know, yeah. it's all about self, selfless love and serving and humility. And I go, yeah, that's, that's gonna match my definition of good. When I switch over to values, I, I go, well, hey, one of my core values is faith. And, and how I explain that, is, you know, I try to stay out of the technical religious aspect, A, because I've been burnt by it, and B, I, I think, you know, different people, have di they're at different paths on this journey. But to me, faith is, hey, I'm part of something a lot bigger. I don't see or understand it. I'm exploring it. I'm feeling it out. I'm trying to, to nail it down. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I, you know, I've got my path for that, but I'm, I'm confident that I have a role to play in a much larger scheme. And... And within that role, there's certain parameters. There's, there's, there's good choices, there's better choices, and there's worse choices. And it's like, you know, for me, you know, my faith practice kind of helps define a lot of those. And in that aspect, I would say it impacted my approach to you know, who I was, how I performed, and, and kind of where I drew on those reserves of toughness. Yeah. Whereas if I felt like, hey, I'm being called to do this by something greater than myself, um, you can dig a little deeper than if you're just doing it for you. Yeah, yeah, so. it gives you extra fuel and your why, locking into that why. Yeah. And for you, something that's big is that legacy too and passing it down to others. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't I don't care if anyone knows my name, but I want the impact to reverberate on past that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to me, that's, that's the measure of success. So I'm gonna back up again and Tell me about this transition from Ranger Regiment to Green Beret. Um, how was that journey? What was that like for you? Um, it, it was pretty cool. So I, I was in Ranger Regiment, but I self-identified as a Green Beret. So I dropped the paperwork <laughs> and went that path. Um, yeah, basically, I you know is like a lot of things. There was a small break in there. So I'd kind of throw my name in the hat to go to Special Forces uh, Assessment and Selection. But in that time period from when I submitted an application, uh, you know, we were on deployment and, you know, my mother-in-law, uh, Tana, my wife, her mom died 
I wouldn't say unexpectedly, but to me it was somewhat unexpectedly while I was on deployment. And that was, that was pretty tough, not being able to be there and, and support um, the closest person to me through that period. Mm -hmm. And I was also really close to my mother-in-law, uh, extremely close to her. So that was a bit of a gut check. I sort of took a pause, and I remember I was on the side of a snowy mountain in Afghanistan in like this old warlords, I mean, it was like a Castle Grayskull. I think, I think we called it that. Crazy. It was in Ranger, Ranger Edmund at the time, and you know, it's, it's Thanksgiving day, it's snowy. I just lost my mother-in-law. I tried to talk to my wife on the sat phone, but we kept losing connection, so I couldn't even support her that way. And I just felt like someone had punched me in the gut. Uh, a friend of mine who I actually talk about in our sessions, his name's Pat, uh, he's kind of there like, dude, this, you know, just, just being there. I don't even know if he was saying anything. But I was like, you know, I think I'm gonna probably leave, leave service at the end of this term and, and really try to, you know, start a family, do a better job with my daughter, support my wife, uh, who was pregnant at the time, and, and just be there. Like, it just felt lousy not being there. Kind of mm -hmm. scared me. So I, I had a break in service for about a year. I worked for a civilian corporation. We actually lived up in Canada. Super cool area, but it was not aligned with my purpose. So environmentally, geographically, economically, everything was awesome. Yeah. But my call was to serve and to push my limits and to connect and inspire and do good. Uh, and I, I, by the way, that was not articulated at that time, but it was there. I just yeah. hadn't named it. And I just felt empty and I didn't care about the money or you know, the pretty laid back life. It just, I was like, this isn't me. Uh, I had friends who were getting injured and killed overseas and I felt wrong not being there. So I came back in, uh, it's funny, they were pulling people back onto active duty who hadn't volunteered. And then I was volunteering trying to get back on active duty. <laughs> and the military and it's all, all its infinite wisdom was like, how do we put this square peg in the round hole? You're like, I want in. Man. I want in, like, put me in, coach, put me in. And they're like, we don't know how to put volunteers. We just don't know how to pull you if you don't want to come in. And I'm like, what do I say? Tell me the words. Like, yeah. and it, I mean, it was actually pretty ironic because I, I come back in, uh, you know, now I'm a captain and I go into training and there's some people in training. They're like, well, you don't want to be here. Like, <laughs> like, I had a I great job. To get back in. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, it was a six month fight for me to come in. They go, yeah, they gave me 30 days to pack my stuff and show up here. <laughs> so when I told them I'd do any job, I'm like I'll come in and list it. I'll drive a truck. I'll do whatever you want. I just want to serve. Put me back in. And they looked at my back and I'm like, no, we're going to have you, you know, leave lead back in the infantry. I mean, you range regiment, three deployments, like, yeah, we're gonna use you at what you're good at. So I'm like, yes, I really didn't wanna drive a truck. <laughs> Nothing against that, just, I drive terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and I sleep a lot, so it's a terrible combo. <laughs> Anyways, I'm, I'm going back into training uh, to kind of go to my next level of command, and one of the folks I work, you know, one of our instructors, special force guy, is like, Phil, you know, why, how come you're not going, trying to be a Green Beret? You got great hair, you'd fit right in with them. It's like the Army's <laughs> Navy SEALs. And, um, I was like, ah, you know, I think I'm past my window. And he's like, well, you know, do you want to give it a shot? Like, see if it's possible? I'm like, yeah, sure. So he, you know, pulled a few strings. And next thing I know, I was in Special Force Assessment and Selection uh, in, I think it was June. It was May or June. It was really, really hot in uh, North Carolina. Keep in mind, I'm from Canada originally, yeah. which is kind of like Montana, but they say A a lot. <laughs> so I'm used to it being cold. And uh, yeah, North Carolina June's not that cold. The humidity. Yeah, luckily I'd come there from Georgia, so there was some acclimation going on. But uh, yeah, I, I went through that. It was friggin' exceptional. Um, it was really good in the sense of they challenge the hell out of you, continuously, intentionally, and unintentionally. And I, I loved it because you walk out of there with a much better idea of, hey, who the heck am I? Because I think adversity really shows us 
who you are, like mm -hmm. who you are under stress and pressure. And sometimes that's a pretty ugly view. Uh, I know it, it is for me. I mean, I reflect back on, man, where I totally dropped the ball, you know, in times of duress. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I can't believe I am that selfish or that, that fear is an issue or that, you know, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. You know, anger, you wear those negative emotions, right? Those, those wolves you don't want to feed uh, rise up. So yeah, selection was great. And then probably the best course I've ever done in my life was the, uh, the Green Beret Special Forces Officer course at, at Fort Bragg. And what I loved about it was they would give you this framework and then they would kind of let you play around with it. You'd go out and you'd do missions, you'd do training, and it wasn't constrained, it wasn't black and white, there wasn't exactly answers. They're like, well, I don't know, Cotton, let me see how it works out for you. you so know? you problem let, solve. Let it buff out, yeah. And they would adapt the problem around you. So that was really good for building mental toughness because you do dumb stuff and then consequently you'd have to, like, oh my God, now we gotta push this truck like 11 miles. Like, this doesn't seem like such a good idea anymore mm -hmm. or whatever it was. Um, or this plan looked so good on paper and is so painful in reality, but we have to execute it because other people are depending on it. But teaching you how to adapt. Yeah, it was phenomenal for that. And it was teaching you like, you, you can choose your, you know, you have freedom of action, you do not have freedom of consequence. So you, you can choose whatever you want, but um, you write that check, you don't always know how you're gonna cash it. And that was really good. And when you learn to accept that, and that failure is okay. Like sometimes life is gonna knock you back down and you just gotta shake the dust off, get up and keep walking. And, and they were, it was good for that. You know, the whole training pipeline was, was excellent when I went through. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, teaching you how to keep learning and learning through every, every failure. Yeah. Well, at that stage, did you, <clears throat> and even now, what are, your, what are your thoughts based on all your experience on this Sometimes there's this controversial debate around mental toughness and leadership. You'll hear it packaged together is something that you're born with, not something that you can learn. Now, like going through Green Beret officer school up to that point, were you finding that it was really obvious one way or the other that you can learn this stuff or no people either have it or they don't? Yeah, I think I used to... Uh subscribe to the, it's all 100% learnable. And, you know, just so I've gotten older and getting more people, no more people, I think it's probably like, there's a combination, there's a genetic component and a training component. Meaning, you know, runners, every, you know, mo most of us are born and can run to some capacity. Some people because of build, lung capacity or whatever are, are naturally better runners, but all of us can train and can get better in mm -hmm. this thing or lifting or, you know, pick your discipline of choice. Yeah. Uh, I think because of genetic environmental factors, certain people probably come into adulthood who are naturally more mental tough, mentally tough. Hey, I had to, I had to endure hardship. I played really tough sports. Uh, I, I had parents that shaped and forged me in a certain way, for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe I didn't. Maybe I got everything I wanted as quickly as I wanted it. I never had to try for anything. I was naturally talented, so I was the captain of the football team with zero effort. Um, between the genetic and kind of those initial environmental factors, you probably step onto the battlefield life as an adult with a certain score for mental toughness. But then I think it's on you what you do after that. So however soft or however hard you are when you first like jump out of the nest, now it's on you. Do you push that? Do you get better? Or do you backslide and become softer? Mm -hmm. And I think that 
you know, the, the schools and the training I did were really good vehicles to slide that, to, turn it to, to really arm. crank the heat up and accelerate it because they had, I didn't have to like figure out, well, how do I become mentally tougher? A, I had to, there was a requirement. And secondly, they had a vehicle and a structure for me to do that in. And I, I think that really goes for a lot of attributes that we sort of just go, yeah, you kind of got them or you don't, or emotions. It's, it's something that, yeah, you probably step into the world with a certain capacity for this, but then it's on you. You're like, oh, I'm just a crappy listener, or I'm, I'm a crappy communicator. Well, maybe you are. Get better. What are you doing to get better? Yeah. How are you sure? You might never be some great orator, but you can sure as hell be better than you are today. And if you don't practice, you can sure as hell be worse. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing? It's, you know, it's a constant dynamic. And one of the simple things you talk about now related to that is just doing something hard every day. Yeah. And back then, there, you were doing something hard at work every day, but now you have to manufacture some of that adversity and just make yourself do something hard every day to keep sharpening that ax. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think seeking out challenge, it's ingrained in our DNA that you know, humans, we are adaptable problem solvers. That is why we exist as a species. And it's funny because we crave comfort. We want the fatty foods. We want to just lay around and rest and bask in the sun. Uh, we, want, we want that, but we're designed and programmed to solve problems, to tackle challenges, to fight and win, to become better, to, you know, there's, so it's, it's a bit of a um, kind of a paradox going on. And, and I think if you look back at, you know, when we lived till the ripe old age of like 32, because, you know, we got eaten by a T-Rex or whatever <laughs> after that, uh, those, those qualities worked well together. You know, I pushed hard. I solved problems to get food, to survive, to fight the woolly mammoth, to whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but now we get in today's day in life where, you know, uh, pursuit of comfort and sedentary jobs and, and, and almost wanting to avoid challenge is a bit of a cultural thing. Like, oh, I don't want to... You know, we worry about being offended and offended others. We worry about, um, you know, what if I do that and I fail? Well, I look stupid. It's going to get blasted all over social media. What if I say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing? And I, and I think when you start avoiding all those stressors and challenges, that's where your mental toughness just totally erodes. And, and you'll see some people who they can come to the gym and they can do the workouts and they can, they can grind through things like that. But then the, the rest of life, they're living this half-life. And I'm not saying, you know, I think mental toughness, there's a continuum too, right? Like if you have none, you're like milk toast and you just fold like a cheap tent for any, any stress that comes your way. On the other end, if you're like maxed out, you might be a total jerk and mm -hmm. like, you know, you might be stubborn and obstinate and not know when to change and burn down your team and burn down your friends. And like you, you might be a, a really hard driving perfectionist, difficult person to be around. You know, we want to be somewhere probably around right that 75 mark. Yeah. And like, how can I be super mentally tough, but like a really good human at the same time? Because uh, I'm sure you could be hard as woodpecker lips and be a total like blight on society. Yeah. And, and we've seen people like that, right? And you're yep. like, oh, you're, just, you, you're hard, but you do it for yourself, for your own narcissism or whatever it is. It's how do we, you know, do hard things for the right reasons? You know, yeah. To me, that's that's a healthy definition of mental toughness. Yeah, you can see that over and over again with fatherhood and being a father. Yeah, it's like yeah, I could I could work out three or four times today, but 
am I going to be there for my wife and my kids and do four workouts? It's like, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah. So it's like you got to you got to balance that out so that you're still serving others and taking care of others. Absolutely. And it it's a it's almost like a different kind of mental toughness. I think it evolves through seasons of your life. You know, there's yeah, I look back at when I was in my 20s or early 30s. Yeah, I didn't have the same responsibilities I had. I had very demanding organizations I was part of. And, you know, mental toughness meant like pushing myself physically harder. Now, as I, as I grew in some of the positions, you had to be socially mental tough. Like, hey, what the hell are you doing? Like, you know, mm-hmm. protect people from themselves, protect the organization from people making bad decisions and be able to step up and be like, no, you don't freaking have three beers and then get in the car. Like, because yep. it's, A, that's idiotic for you. That's bad for whoever you hit if you lose your mind. And, you know, finally, that's going to, smash the credibility of our organization that's a whole lot different than going all right can i can i run five miles in under 30 minutes yeah you know they both require mental toughness but it's different capacity and i'm, I'm like you now where i'm like hey how do i be the best father to these eight kids that i'm trying to raise and some of them are adults now uh and how do i be you know the husband the supporter to this amazing person you chose to spend her life with me Exactly. It's not four workouts a day each for an hour apiece. She does not care if I have a 12 pack. She knows I don't. Um, she might, but I don't. So she cares if you're around. Yeah. Listening. She goes, can you, can you fold the laundry and give it to the right kids while I'm at med school? Yeah. And that bad about it, you know, I bad about a 200 at that. I'm working on it though. I'm working so hard. Eight kids. That's insane. I don't recommend it. I love them to death, but man, that's, um, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah, like I'm still a kid, so. Age, so the age range right now is like 20, 21 down to? 14, uh, 14 to 26. 14 to 26. Or 25. I should really know. There's a lot of them, to, you know, Dustin, don't, uh, don't judge. <laughs> it's hard. That's incredible. So you and I were chatting earlier just about missions and some missions that stand out more than others at times in terms of mental toughness components that that have stood out let's let's speed up and move forward into the mission of april what it was the year yeah it was april 6 2010 2010 yeah so what happened that day so this mission is was pretty pretty big for me Uh, it's one of those like you look at turning points in your life and, and this was probably one of them and it was one where had I not been on a team where not just me, but multiple others had weapons grade levels of mental toughness, um, you know, we, we probably would have been like an article on CNN or, you know, mm-hmm. a blip on the news. So what that was, was I was on a recon patrol, night recon patrol with a mix of Green Berets who I was leading, uh, Marine Special Operators, and then uh, some Afghan commandos. And uh, recon patrols, we were split up into small groups. In my infinite wisdom, you know, I, you know, we didn't know this area. This was total fog of war, mystery area. We had gone behind the Taliban lines. It was actually a very conventional fight up in this area. There was wire, there was bunkers, there was defensive positions. Like it had not been anything I had seen up to this point in the conflict. And so our job was to get around behind and see, hey, were civilians still in this area or the Taliban cleared everyone out? Because we'd heard they were all cleared out, uh, but we wanted to confirm that in advance of future operations where we were gonna try to play smash mouth ball and clear out this valley from the Taliban. So we were there to confirm or deny 
our civilians there. We weren't even really looking for the Taliban. Well, we did our mission. We confirmed like, wow, this is a total ghost town. Like it was straight up eerie, hair on the back of your neck, standing up. Like you could see civilians had left here in a hurry, um, you know, probably months ago. There was dust, but there's like cooking pots out. There's things around. It and you, fast. you felt like you were in a ghost town. And basically what happened to Taliban come in and said, told everyone like, hey, get out. This is where we're gonna, you know, bloody up the Americans. So once we confirmed that, I'm like, well, be nice to get back to my cot. So let's all rally up at this prominent terrain feature. It was like the intersection of a road and a creek. And uh, there was a big compound there. I'm like, let's all meet at this compound. No one's here, the place is abandoned. And then we'll, we'll head back in force. And we knew where the Taliban front line was. So we're like, yeah, we'll come and hit him from the rear, smash our way through um, on our way back to our, our secure compound on the yeah. north side of this. Well, unbeknown to me, the compound I decided that would be our place to link up was the district headquarters for the Taliban in this region. And none of them were out in the village at the time because they were all there having meetings. <laughs> and we show up in our three separate groups and uh, they actually thought we were there for the meeting. They didn't realize that we were a mix of Americans and Afghan commandos. That's insane. So um, they came out, they literally came out to greet us with open arms. A guy named Mike Hunter, uh, they were coming out like trying to wave him in. It's dark, they don't have night vision. <laughs> and we didn't knock it, no, we didn't knock in the door. Like they were guarding it, but they saw us coming and like, hey, hey, over here, or whatever you say in Pashto. How, and, many, uh, how many was across your three groups? Uh, I don't, we were probably a, a joint element altogether, probably about 50. So I, I still had about 20, yeah, maybe about 10 that were up on some high ground. So these three groups coming together were about 40. And, you know, the Taliban who were having the meeting in this compound, just think of two strip malls put together. It's about that size or maybe one strip mall. I mean, it was four separate compounds all walled in together, connected by a bunch of tunnels and carizas, which is like a irrigation system that runs underground. So just think basically a place on top of a bunch of sewers and subways. Uh, so all kinds of fun places for people to, people to mess with you. Yeah. Uh, and there's probably, you know, we, we had about 40 people in, friendlies in this area and then you know i don't i don't know how many enemy were in that like definitely well north of 30 um and that was just the start hmm. so as they're waving us in to come break bread and join them um at some point they recognized us we recognized them it was it was we were in three elements coming together and it was another element made, that made the first con contact other than the other side i was just looking at a mud wall so to me i was like yeah i'm just gonna hang out here and then we'll head up. We didn't know the enemy was there. Crazy. But all of a sudden the night goes from deathly quiet to a whole wave of gunfire and grenades getting thrown back and forth and yelling in about six different languages. Uh, and, and my guys start coming across on the radio like, yep, we are in contact. And so it's like, oh great, you know, we were looking for the enemy, we found the enemy, like <laughs> let's clear this compound, not realizing that we were trying to clear an ant's nest sitting in meeting. all these tunnels. I didn't realize, you know, they probably outnumbered us two to one at this point. So we began uh, fighting our way to the compound and clearing it. And it was weird because we didn't know about all these tunnels and bunkers in the compound. So the, the enemy, the Taliban, kept popping up in rooms we'd cleared and behind us. And uh, I mean, it was just absolute chaos. And we Everywhere. were fighting through and we were rapidly racking up casualties. And we're, you know, I, I'm helping. I mean, everyone was involved in the fight. Like I was the commander and I was radioing and talking to hire at the time, but like there was only about 10 Americans on the ground at the time and everyone else was Afghan. Actually, it was probably less than 10 at that actual part, right? About seven of us. So, you know, when 
when some of my team starts taking casualties, I'm helping take them out to the helo and we're getting shot up. Uh, you know, we end up with a row of Afghans and Americans kind of laid out along this mud wall in various injuries. My, one of my medics, uh, Wyatt Goldsmith, you know, uh, he died on a later deployment, it's his name right there, but he, he shot through the foot, limping around, squirting blood through his boots, still treating people. And I'm like, why? We've got a 5K walk. Like, you better get on this helicopter. And he's like, no, I'm good. You talk about mental toughness. Like, his purpose, his mission to serve others and to treat the wounded outweighed the fact that, it's you know, bleeding. he was sporting a hole in his foot that wasn't there, you know, an hour before. Still serving everyone. Yeah, I about had to, like, rear naked choke him to get him on the <laughs> on the plane or on the uh, healer to fly out. Well, our medevac actually ends up having fuel issues and they literally can't take our wounded out anymore. So now we are fighting about a numerically equal enemy in a compound. So the engagements are anywhere from, you know, five to 25 feet, all very close range. So our, our optics, our aircraft, all the technical stuff that helps us doesn't Not matter anymore. It, this is like literally a fist fight at times. Choppers on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. The, the helo can't come back and help us anymore. Um, Cloud cover moves in, so we, we can't get, you know, um, Apaches or anything doing gun runs. And they, they wouldn't help. We were too close anyways. Mm-hmm. So I call them a quick reaction force, the folks that are supposed to come out and help us. And on their way out, they get hit. And so we're starting to realize, like, this is not an ordinary building we're trying to clear through. We're like, there is a lot of angry people here. And we definitely interrupted their tea party. <laughs> and uh, we we start capturing a few radios off, off bodies of the enemy. And... Our Afghans are listening to them. They're like, hey, just so you know, this is the headquarters we just hit. And they're calling up every surrounding Taliban unit within radio or cell phone range to get in. And they think they have us. They go, we're being hit by a small American Afghan unit. If you come quick, we can destroy them. They're calling everyone. And so I had one element that was in what we call overwatch. They're up on some high ground. And they're, they're overwatching the village in the valley where we're operating. And they start calling in like, hey, there is all kinds of movement in these hills. On this, There's a river running through the town. On this side of the river, that side of the river. Like we're seeing groups of 10, 15, 5 coming from literally every, every point on the compass. Yeah. And they're all coming at the sound of the guns. And they don't look friendly. And all of a sudden they started getting hemmed up. So now I have an element on the high ground that's getting hit. We're still trying to clear this flipping compound of... You know, we thought they were zombies because we're like, how many times can the same person come up from the same window and shoot me? Well, it's because they're coming out of tunnels at us. Uh, We're fighting to clear that. And then our quick reaction force who's coming out to save us gets blown up. And now they're dealing with their own problems. They're they're in a fight. They've got casualties. They've also got a a vehicle on fire, you know, missing a wheel. That's not going to do anyone any good. (laughs) So um, it's a pretty dire situation. You want to talk about mental toughness. That, that was where all of a sudden you, you start slowing down going, you, you're like, this this can go really, really badly, really quickly for us. Yeah. Some would say it already had. And at one, at one point, this, you know, when things are looking pretty bleak for us, where we're fighting inside buildings, and then you step outside the building to get around a wall to get some cover, and you're getting shot from the outside too. Like, there was no safe spot. And one of the Afghan commanders comes to me and he spoke a little bit of English and we were fairly good friends. He's like, Phil, he's like, I think you should know the Taliban are talking to my soldiers, trying to get them to turn on you. And they say, if you turn your guns on the Americans and walk away, or if you just walk away, we'll let you live. We just want the Americans. Of, at which point there was only about five of us that were running energy at the time. Wild. In, they, in that particular compound. 
Are they like yelling this out? Or are they getting it on the they radio? Were, they were talking on the radios because we had grabbed a bunch of the Taliban radios and I think they figured it out. And so they were coming across on these unsecured nets and they were also yelling. And I mean, we were all close. It was like room to room. They're in the next room, we're in this room type thing. Grenades are rolling back and forth. And it was a sporty night. And they're yelling to the Afghans, drop yeah. your guns. Well, yeah, they're just like, hey, you know, or, or turn your guns on the Americans. Like it doesn't have to be this way. And the Afghans had taken several casualties and one KA at this point. So they, they had skin in this game. Um, like it was pretty serious. So when we're kind of at the nadir, that, that darkest element of the fight, it was one of those like, all right. I remember taking a knee and just kind of refocusing on, okay, what are we looking for here? We're trying, we were trying to find the enemy. We were trying to determine where they're at so we could do this big following up. We're doing that to clear this valley. Well, we accomplished that. We found the enemy. Matter of fact, they're all coming to us. We don't have to hunt for them anymore. <laughs> I'm like, and if we want to, you know, clear this valley, this is probably our best shot. I'm like, it just happens that we're in a really bad situation. But starting looking at how can we, how can we advance towards our higher purpose? Like, number one, we would like to survive. That would be cool. So mm -hmm. let's, let's, make positive steps there. We have no real good air support. We don't have medevac. I have a bunch of wounded people and I have three elements pinned down and we're, we're all getting swarmed. I'm like, okay, what can we do? Number one, let's clear this compound. These guys are really starting to piss me off. Uh, let's do work and just smash through this. Mm -hmm. So we rallied, we poured a lot of work and effort into rooting everyone out of the compounds. We realized there was tunnels and they were linked to other compounds so people could steep, keep stomach coming in. So like, okay, we just need to blow this whole place up. We just need to turn this into a parking lot. Uh, so I, I grabbed my force, we grabbed our wounded, we pulled back, and then even though we had clouds above us, we had a B-1 bomber overhead that could drop on grid. So my CCT, my combat controller, you know, coordinated to drop bombs through the clouds and wipe out this, this headquarters compound, uh, which they did. And then our, my higher headquarters, this is just a kind of funny part of the story, goes, hey, Phil, you know, we'll, we'll let you do that, but you know, we, we don't want to just go around blowing up buildings. That's bad, bad press for us. So after you do it, could you please go back and check to make sure there's no civilian casualties? Insane. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound fun at all, but yeah, sure, I'll do it. And so I had a small team. I think there's four of us. It's one of my favorite pictures from all my deployments. And we have to go take pictures of this bombing while we're under fire. Now, this is one of those things like, higher headquarters didn't quite maybe understand the situation we were in. Yeah. Uh, because I think they asked me at one point, are there any civilians in the area on the radio? I go, if they are, they've all got RPGs or PKMs and are shooting at us. So they're not friendly civilians. <laughs> um, like, I don't know what these people's day job is. All I know is they're trying to kill us. <laughs> and they're doing a pretty good job. So we, yeah, we sneak up there to go check out this building, these craters. Well, of course, the Taliban who are all around us, they're going to check on their leaders who were in these buildings that are now ruined. So you just meet up. With we them totally met up. It was, <laughs> I, we come out and I'm, we're sitting there. I remember there's a guy with a camera, like his name's Mike, and he's like taking pictures. He's the one who first met the Afghans. So he's really building quite a he's relationship a with these day. people. He's yeah. having a, either a really bad or really good day, depending on how you look at it. So he's taking pictures and next thing you know, we see like three other heads that don't have helmets on pop up, but they do have guns and we just get hemmed up Oh man! Uh, and, and all their friends come behind him. So I have this great picture of Mike running with a camera in his hand and his <laughs> rifle because we had to get the pictures for hire because they said and we're just, you know, good soldiers doing our job and he's at a dead sprint. It'd be a great mountain tough workout. And I'm turning and running the other way. And I think it's from a helmet cam of, of our third guy, Snapped my it. air control, who's got it. Oh, and uh, yeah, you can almost see the bullets in the air as we're, we're hauling ass back. 
Uh, but we go back, so hey, problem one, we, we took some proactive steps. You know, we didn't cave, we didn't buckle, we didn't panic, we flattened the root of the problem. And you guys were close to this B1. Yeah, we were about, I think we were about 120, I mean, I had, a, had a Garmin on, I was looking at the grids, and we, like we were danger close. I could see the bombs coming in, um, and they dropped, and they dropped four. And uh, from that point, we're like, all right, check that box. Now let's move to our quick reaction force. Let's bring our forces together. So we moved to our quick reaction force. They're right under a hill from where my Overwatch LMB is. So now we were at least all inside of each other. We were all getting hemmed up pretty good, but we were together. So my force of you know 40 or whatever, that got whittled down to 27 after casualties and KAs were taken out. Um, now we added the QRF, which is probably another 30, plus my guys on the hill, another 10. Yeah. And some of them had gotten hurt. Uh, but we started to, like now we had a little bit of firepower, you know, going out. So we began fixing the enemy and they were building up around us. Uh, and, and again, my CCT is like, Phil, we, we can see them. Like they're not even afraid anymore. There was, out. it was easy to pick them out. So, you know, that's the thing about a lot of times in that conflict is the engagements, it was really hard to pinpoint where the threat was. So you couldn't, you can bring any weapons to bear. Mm -hmm. Now we could, we knew where they were, but our aircraft couldn't see them, but we knew. So we were able to start relaying that to, to our hire and getting approval and, you know, kind of brought the hammer of God down on them. With grids. Yeah. And it just, I mean, it was, a, it was, it went from a really good day for them and a really bad day for us to a really bad day for them. And still, I wouldn't say a great day for us, but it was things were looking up. Yeah. And so now we just started to put the heat on them and they, they backed off a bit. And now all we had to do was fight with our element back to our base, which was, you know, it was about at this point, about three and a half clicks away. Uh, there was a road and there was an enemy on both sides of the road and we were trying to hold them down and just, just get through it. Out. Yeah. And we, and we had one vehicle at this point that had made it out to us. So we had one vehicle and about set, you know, maybe 50, 60 people at that point. <laughs> They're trying to use that as cover. Uh, but there was lots of walls that we didn't really try to put 60 people behind it, but it was like a rolling bunker for us. And, you know, I remember the driver and the gunner that that thing got hit so many times. We were just like, oh, I, I put bet. those guys in for the Medal of Honor. And, yeah. and the, the guy who was, who was gunning it was like a supply clerk or something. And it's that whole mental toughness is contagious. Like, you know, you're addressing all this with like, all right, let's stay optimistic. We're not all going to die. Let's be positive. We, we can actually turn this into a good situation. Just take the next step. Do the next right thing keep making your position better and you know injecting a little bit of humor in there there because like if you didn't it was really depressing uh and trying to keep our afghans up and you could see them starting to be like yeah 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 we're gonna show these guys we got this did any afghan ever bail on you on that mission no i've never had one bail matter of fact in follow-on missions i had some that were on that mission do like straight up like insanely brave brave stuff yeah like dangerously brave. Like I'm like, please don't do that again. They were bought in. Yeah, they were they were all in. They were like, and they saw, you know, where we had we were willing to risk with them, and they were like, okay, if you can do that, and it's not even your country, you know, what what can we do? And that was part of our discussion with them after, you know, and they brought that to us. Wild. So it was, um, yeah, staying positive, it was not quitting, like just committed, like no, we're getting through this. I'm not putting my head down. I'm not quitting. Like I'm tired. I'm exhausted. A lot of people I care about are messed up right now, uh, but we're getting through this, and we did. And it sounds like one of the biggest takeaways, which is, you know, a great principle in itself, was just that moment where you were able to pull out, take yourself to thirty thousand feet, look at the situation, analyze 
what's going on and then go back in and get to work. Yeah, it was all it was all about perspective and just getting that, you know, and it, it was, I was taking a knee and there's chaos going all around. And I, I used to have a little, I call it my playbook, all these laminate cards that were different radio calls and stuff and just some planning templates. And uh, I'm like, you know, before I just keep reactively making decisions, let me decide how we want this to play out. What's the best case? What's the best possible outcome for this tough situation? Okay, now what do I have to do to make that happen? And that's and that's what I was doing. I was, you know, doing my calls off the radios versus just keying and, and freaking out. And I'd like to say, like, I always was at this level or better in the future. But I'll just, you know, quick side note, you know, I had future ops and missions later down the road with even better trained individuals um, where I forgot in the mm -hmm. moment to be that, you know, the presence of mind and have the 30,000 foot view and, and, and slow down and think, especially when you're making decisions. Mm -hmm. And instead I was just reactive and, and it stung and it hurt, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's just cause you did it right once doesn't mean it's guaranteed to work out. You know, you're, you're guaranteed success. It's mental toughness is you got to sharpen that, you know, sharpen that blade every day. Yeah. And in the day you let your guard down, watch out. Cause that's what it might be called on more than any others. Yeah, it is truly like a muscle yep. and same thing. It'll atrophy just like a muscle if you're not working on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm really excited you're here and in town and in Bozeman. You've been filming with Nate all morning, um, getting ready to launch this mental toughness mentality, mountain tough mentality mindset course for the mountain tough community. One of my favorite parts about it is we're going to help a lot of people start stop that weakening of their mental tough muscle and it's going to be a way for them to sharpen it but also build their own plan to sharpen it and one of the things i'm most stoked about is the this concept that it's it's 10 days they're short but they got to do all 10 days in a row yeah back to back to back yeah i mean i i look at it you know i did the foundations workout absolutely loved it and it's kind of the same concept. I mean, really looking at that and looking at mental toughness as, hey, this is something that can be learned and then practiced and then sharpened and applied. That, that's what we're going for. So taking that same model and just going, okay, what if we make a, a program that's like, like a mentally tough workout where we introduce a concept, we talk about it, we maybe give some examples, we explain why it's important, how to build it, and then we give you homework where you as the mountain tougher can then work with that. And at the end of these 10 sessions, designed to be done over two weeks, just like any other workout program. And they're short, they're all 20, 20 minutes or less. You know, you can do them on your lunch break. I mean, it doesn't, you know, do them whenever you, you can. You can do them at night, but I think they're really impactful. When you finish it, you're going to have a library of resources that you can look up and leverage. You know, we don't claim to be the mental tough say all and end alls. But, you know, I've seen it, I've used it, I've studied it, you know, I've researched it and, and I've applied it. More importantly, I've seen it applied across all these different spectrums. We're going to give the community, you know, some resources there where they can start mm -hmm. their journey. Uh, and we're also going to use these exercises to let them build out their own mental toughness playbook. Just like I had that little playbook that in a firefight, you know, I literally like, okay, hold on a second. This is chaos right now what's the best possible approach to this and remind myself this is this is what we're going for here mm -hmm. um 
the, the people who go through the program and do it in a disciplined fashion will have it. This isn't just, you know, this is a podcast, but the mental toughness program is not intended to be just to listen to feel good. It's, yeah, we'll talk about some stuff. I hope we make it engaging. I hope we make it relevant. But the most important parts are those last two minutes where we say, okay, here's your homework for today. Whip out your mentally tough, you know, we tell them to get a mentally tough manual as part of their first session. That's spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, you know, they get that, write it, take your notes in there and, and follow along and build this and then share. We, you know, we want people to share in the comments, share on Facebook, this worked, that this, this didn't, man, this really resonates with me. I don't get this. I think this is BS. Like those are all, man, find your path and share it and lift each other up. I think that's the best possible outcome Yeah, is they have the knowledge. People have the tools, the exercise, they apply them and they share with others. Man, I, I would really rather learn from your failures than from mine because mine really hurt. So if you've been through something before me, like, man, help me out. Let me leverage yeah. that. And, and I hope that's the kind of environment that we're able to create with this. Yeah, I'm, I'm beyond excited because I think for years what I've seen is there's been... It's only in the last couple of years that this discussion of mental toughness has been really mainstream and prevalent, but no one has ever given that practical approach. So for years it was, and even up until today, what you normally see is be tough, get tough, uh, go run 300 miles, go... A lot of the stuff is around like go to a hundred mile marathon um, or hundred mile ultra. And for most people, that's not practical for where they're currently at or for their current state of life. And so there's still a big roadmap that'll make that person more mentally tough with a practical approach. But running a hundred miles isn't the solution for every single person. And I think what you're doing and what the community will see soon is really cool because you can't be mentally tough without putting in the work. But a lot of people don't know what work they're supposed to be putting in. And this is going to give them 10 very practical things of here's the work we want you to do that's going to make you more mentally tough. And person A's mental toughness can look different than B's but the recipe gives them a tool set to kind of chase their own journey. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, the principles and kind of the, the tenets of mental toughness are universal, but they look different based on the individual and based on the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm a stay at home mom of four, it's going to look different than someone who's on the Olympic water polo team. Uh, it's going to look different for someone who's in ministry to you know the the CEO who she's working in Atlanta, but I think every one of them can develop mental toughness across the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, social realms, and I think we've given a framework, not necessarily the. I mean, there's there's a lot of paths to the top, and we do you know we try to keep it in ten pretty distinct blocks, but there's a hundred more. We just want to give something, take that first step on the journey and give you some, some tools to explore even further. And you know, I hope we do do follow-up sessions based on feedback. I mean, this, this whole initiative came from Mountain Tougher saying, hey, this is something we want to explore some more. Yeah. And you, know, you, you heard, and you know, I'm certainly happy to share you know, my, my thoughts and observations on it. Uh, I got totally excited putting this whole program together, so. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, it is 
it's amazing how the community asked for it and now it's coming into fruition. And I think you're spot on that it's something that is not going to end because, I mean, we're big believers in lifelong learning and this is just one topic. And it's just like human performance. Like there's always one more thing to learn to make us better, yeah. faster, stronger. And the mind's no different. So it's going to be a fun year. Excited. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Well, I really appreciate you and appreciate everything you do and um, can't wait to get this out to the audience. The Mountain Tough community will see it real soon coming out in the app. And um, we can't, I, I can't wait to see what they think. Yeah, likewise, man. Appreciate you and uh, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks, Phil. All right. Appreciate it. Yeah.